Hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. I am so thrilled to be here today with Jennifer Milner, my guest co-host, and Terry Hyde. Terry is a counselor, and he is a former professional ballet dancer with the Royal Ballet. to have you on today. Thank you for inviting me. And Jen, it's great to have you on as well. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. Well, Terry. Hello, Linda. Hello, Jen. Hello. technology. <laughs> I know, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Terry, it is fabulous to have you on today and, and to hear about your counseling that um, you're doing with dancers and your work in the space of, of mental health for dancers. And you started out as a, a ballet dancer, is my understanding. And can you tell us a bit about what got you into dance and your career as a ballet dancer? Yes, um, I was a lively child. And what got me into dancing was the fact that my mother didn't want to keep uh, buying new furniture that I jumped on because I was so lively. And she sent me to ballet class when I was six years old. And then the local, the, the school that I was in put me in for a scholarship for the RAD. And I did that for five years, got the scholarship for five years, after which at age 15, I then joined the Royal Ballet School, the senior school in London. Um, and I was there for two and a half years. And in the January of the final year, the artistic director of the Royal Ballet phoned up the school and said they wanted me to do joined the company to play the Russian Sun in Boutique Fantasque, which was just being represented by Leonid Massin, the choreographer of it. So I got in under a temporary contract just for that tour of, of, of it. And uh, then they took me on permanently after that. And I was there for about two and a half years. Uh, the two, two companies of the Royal Ballet were joining together and I left before that happened. Um, and joined London's Festival Ballet as a soloist. Now, London's Festival Ballet is now called English National Ballet, and we've just had the uh, 70 years um, anniversary of it uh, last week. Yeah. And um, so I was doing principal roles. It was mostly character roles, uh, you know, uh, Sancho Panza um, in Don Q and the headmistress in Graduation Ball. Um, Dr. Capalius in Capalia, you know, those, those sort of uh, character roles. Um, I wanted to do more after that. So um, I left Festival Ballet and went into musical theatre. The first show that I did was a, a UK tour of West Side Story. A brilliant, absolutely brilliant show. Uh, nothing could have beaten it. Um, and then I, I did uh, West End musicals, film and television. I retired 10 years later and set up a business management organization so for looking after people in show business uh, and it, it didn't matter singers dancers actors uh lighting designers theater designers even the dentists of one of the dancers <laughs> i, I managed <laughs> manage their affairs as well um and so that i set that up and ran it for 15 years and when I retired, I thought I need to know a bit more about what was going on. And I'll tell you now, it was to do with the clients offloading all their issues. Mm. So, I, you know, I go around and talk business and what do they want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they would start offloading. And I thought, what do I do with this? 
what do I do with all this information and all this emotion, you know? And um, so that's when I started to be and trained to be a psychotherapist. And then in 2010, I did a master's degree in psychotherapy and healing practice. And it wasn't until 2016 when an ex-dancer came to me after they had been discharged from a psychiatric unit. Um, so I treated that, that person for six months and then discharged her. And I thought afterwards, from a marketing mind point of view, this is a niche market. I've been mm -hmm. there, done that, gone through all of that stuff. And now I'm a psychotherapist. And I thought, wow, yes, let's put it together. So the beginning of 2017, I set up a website called counselingfordancers.com. And, oh, yes, a point that I need to make for the American listeners is that counselling has two L's uh, in the UK. So <laughs> if you're doing a search, put two L's in. From that point on, I've been, so from 2017, I've been pushing hard, banging on doors, emailing people. Um, and I think because of the stigma of mental health, they don't want to know. Mm. The, the artistic directors uh, or principals of schools just don't seem to want to know because there has to be this wonderful glowing sheen in front that the public must see and mustn't talk about uh, mental health. They can talk about injuries and things like that, which, of course, is what we're going to be talking a bit about now. But mental health, no, it's a no-no. So it's taken two years. And if you look on my website, you can see the list of schools and organisations mm -hmm. that I've actually got through to that are open-minded and are willing to support their dancers, whether they're students or whether they're professional dancers. So I hope I've covered that question for you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's always fascinating to hear how people take their unique set of circumstances and, and turn it into something that, that benefits, uh, like you said, a, a niche market, but a critically important um, group of people that, that desperately need help from people like you. So it's wonderful that you're doing what you're doing. Mm. As, as a counselor who, who specializes in dancers, you've probably seen dancers of all different uh, body types and shapes. Um, has there been anything in your sessions that has made you draw a connection between hypermobility and specific mental health issues in dancers? Yes, it's called control or, from their point of view, lack of. Mm. And so when there is no control, and, and this is general public as well as, as, as well as us, when there is a lack of control, anxiety sets in because it's part of the fight and flight uh, mechanism that comes in, or fight and flight and freeze, in fact. So when you look at hypermobile dancers, they have a, a lack of control. You know, could you, you imagine uh, an ordinary person trying to walk on a tightrope that's swinging around or on a, on a moving floor? There's, a, there's lack of control and anxiety sets in. And this is what happens with dancers uh, who have extreme hypermobility. That's, That's interesting. I have seen that link myself between anxiety and dancers with hypermobility, but I've never drawn such a direct line between it from a, a lack of control perspective. A lack of mm. physical control leads to that feeling of lack of control over other parts of your life as well, too. That's really interesting. 
it is it there is a real knock-on effect it's like um uh yes on a, on a on a on a boat you know moving around on a boat there's a lack mm -hmm. of control you can't do anything so you're either going to go with it or you're going to uh, be really anxious about the, the moving boat sure yeah that is very interesting i've never heard it described in that way either but that does make a lot of sense because right whether people are dancers or not people with hypermobility definitely are at increased risk of anxiety and you're explaining this in such a logical way and con control is such a huge factor in even in non-hypermobile non-dance people that uh, i think we all feel better when we feel more of a sense of control as compared to when we don't so, so that's very interesting how do you use that piece of information in your work with um, dancers well there's you know you can't change the hypermobility because they've got it you know, and and as long as teachers, uh, dance teachers, are able to to use those in a positive way and try and help strengthen the hypermobility uh, parts of, of the body, then the dancer would have more control and the the, the anxiety then reduces. Um, but it's reframing the way those dancers see things, so having more of an understanding of their body. They can reframe the thoughts because when I'm doing my um, workshops and I, I run for, for both for dance companies and for dance schools, mental health self-care workshops. Uh, these are specific for dancers. There are others for actors as well, but the specific ones for dancers. And I try, I break them up into groups and I get them to write down in the groups what are the physical feelings that they get for anxiety? So there's a whole long list of stuff that comes out. And then without actually telling them why I'm doing it, I then get them to do a list of what excites them. You know, so when something excites them, what are they feeling? And invariably, the two lists come out the same because hmm. it, that's what it is. They're identical. But what is it? What is it that creates the difference between anxiety and excitement? It's a thought. The thought is usually what if. And you can say mm. anything after what if. And then you can go into fantasy land of what ifs. And the fantasy land of what ifs is the extreme anxiety of uh, what if I step out of my front door and uh, a slate falls off the roof. You know, you can go, you go into extremes. So you can, I get them to list their what ifs. And and then I say, well, where are all these what ifs? Are they in the past or the present or the future? And like, oh, obviously they're in the future. And I say, can you control the future? I mean, you can to a certain extent. I know I'm generalizing here. You can control the future to a certain extent by setting things in place, but you can go to an extreme. You can go to an obsessive extreme, you know, the obsessive compulsive disorder. That is an extreme form of anxiety. Um, you can, you know, encapsulate in the whole thing because someone needs to do something regularly because they're out of control. And so something in their past has happened. Some trauma or a perceived trauma has happened, something in their life and that, that took them out of control. Mm. And then they started controlling. Now, you were gonna, we can go off onto anorexia now. So if there's some trauma that's happening, what's the only thing you can control? What goes in your mouth? Right. 
So that's where a restrictive eating comes in. You can over-exercise, you can control that, can't you? So you go into exercise and you over-exercise and you go and then you burn out. So all of these things come back to the ability or the inability to control your environment. So mm. if you were brought up in, a, in a, an environment where other siblings or parents or whoever were disruptive and you were the only quiet ones, you had no control over what's going on, or you have abusive parents, no control over that. So this is where all these the environmental situations come in where anxiety, OCD, anorexia, etc. Plus, of course, when you go to the extremes, you then get depression because mm -hmm. it becomes too much. Oh, by the way, um, as, as you're uh, coming from America, I was over with the Joffrey Bally School in November of last year. Uh, oh. I spent two, two days with them doing these workshops with each year group. And um, so this was part of part of it. It was getting them to talk about their physical feelings when they have anxiety. So whether it's audition anxiety, exam anxiety, performance anxiety, these these things create a physical feeling because there's an intrinsic link between the mind and the body. And so then I then asked them, OK, if if a ballet company comes to New York and you want to go and see them, and you're excited about it, what are your physical feelings? So they then listed those physical feelings and bingo, they're both the same. So anxiety, physical symptoms and um, exciting excitement, uh, physical symptoms are the same. The, the only difference is that creates it is a thought. Mm. So the thought of the negative thought or the positive thought. Uh, and as I, I mentioned earlier, the what ifs. Mm -hmm. So what if I fell over on stage? What if uh, my shoe fell off? Or what if I forgot? Um, and then, oh, look, there's those, oh, my parents are out front. What if I go wrong? You know, so all of these things create. And because there's an intrinsic link between the mind and the body, invariably, you do go wrong because you've told yourself you go wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the the thing is to reframe it and change it into I'm excited about this. I'm excited to go on stage. I'm excited that my parents are out front. I'm going to be really good. And then you go on and do it. And that's, that is the difference. It's that thought and mm -hmm. the negative thought. That's a beautiful way to help give them the power to reframe it and take control of that that feeling of of not having control. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And as I as I mentioned, that control has got to do with so much, so many other um, disorders or the lack of control has got to do with the, the other. Absolutely. Disorders. So there we are. <laughs> wow, that that is really interesting. I, I don't know about you, Jen, but I, I've never heard things explained in quite that way before. And to me, the more that we understand these things, the the better we can deal with them ourselves and the better we can help other people that are that are struggling with these with these situations so absolutely absolutely and i see so much in the the dancers that i work with and and through my own career there is so little that you can control as a dancer um, mm -hmm. you have no control over casting you have no control over who's going to hire you or who's going to want to hire you um, 
and you can always turn those things and say, well, I choose to accept this contract and I choose to go to this place and I choose to do this. But still, as a dancer, you feel like there's not a lot that you do have control over. You don't have control over whether or not your favorite maker of point shoe is going to retire and suddenly you have to find a new type of point shoe. <laughs> there's so much as a dancer that you don't feel like you have control over. Um, and it's so easy for dancers to devolve into well, what, what can I control? And as you said, those go into some, some self-harm areas for sure. Yes, they go to dark areas as, as to what they control. But, you know, the, the other thing I, I, I talk about in the workshops is the fact that when situations arise, they're meant to, arise, they're, they're meant, meant to happen for a reason. And so if you have that philosophy, it makes life easier. And to work with your gut feeling, I was talking about the intrinsic link between the mind and the body. You know, the, uh, from an early age, we're told one thing. And we'll go back to the anxiety now. We're told one thing. So maybe a teacher or a parent said, aren't you nervous about going on stage? So that feeling that, that a child has got has been told that they're nervous. So they're, they're already linked into that nervous thing rather than saying, I bet you're excited about going on stage. So that then they can link, ah, oh, that feeling is, talk, is talking about excitement. So it's, it's telling students one thing that creates all this negativity rather than being mm -hmm. positive right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I went off track there. <laughs> oh, no, that's, fan that's absolutely fantastic. This is going to be very useful information because, um, you know, right, whether you're aud auditioning for something and they're looking for somebody who who's a different height than you you can't control that so uh, correct that's right yeah and and of course they it's it's really subjective in in an audition and and if if the uh, person who is auditioning understands how subjective it is that that director or that choreographer um will only want a certain type of person um yes you've got everyone else there but they're only looking for a certain type of person. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you don't fit, that's OK. It's right. not right for you. You know, right. go on and do another audition somewhere else. And the same thing about uh, I, I hear so often, I want to go into the Royal Ballet. I want to, to get into ABT. And you think, is that company really right for you? Are you right. going to be enjoy? So if they do get in, all well and good. If they force and force and force and force and they finally get in, is that going to be, are they going to be happy there? Is that mm. the right company for them? So allowing, I was saying earlier about the gut feeling about, um, so I had I've got one uh, client who had this idea of getting where she wanted to get to. And I obviously can't mention companies, otherwise it'll come back to her. Um, and I put all that to her and she finally went with her gut feeling and she's really happy, not mm. in the company that she mm -hmm. wanted to. And I said, it may be, that you get into that company and then in that company and then you get to the company after that that you actually wanted. But on the other hand, you may not. Right. The, easier, the less pressure you have on yourself, the easier it is for you. And so we did, before her, her audition, we did these, um, uh, I think in America you call it imagery, I call it visualizations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We do these visualizations on on. Uh, the process going into the audition and doing the audition and, and this worked in in her school as when she when she was at school we were doing that 
and she used these visualizations before and she felt so relaxed and of course when you're relaxed you do things better absolutely yes and i think it's so important what you said about um the things that come up come up for a reason and and can be useful and i see over and over again with the dancers especially with injuries um, something will happen and they will just be devastated and they'll say, well, now I can't do this. And they see such short term, like the next three months of my life are ruined. And mm. I always tell them this injury, it's not a speed bump, you know, that's going to make you slow down. I said, you can use it as a launching ramp, you know, that ramp that bikes ride to jump up and go higher in the air. And I yeah. said, you can look at it as something that's going to slow you down and hold you back. Or you can look at it as an opportunity to get stronger and healthier and better. And when you come back from the injury, you're going to be better than you were before you got injured. And it's yeah, so a great analogy, Jen. To, it's so important for them to see that. And especially with my hypermobile clients, they get so frustrated and they say, I cannot handle this body. I can't deal with it. It's not fair that all my friends can do this. And I'm still trying to be able to hold it all together. And I'm like, but you put the work in now. And it's going to be so much better down the road. And, yeah. and and having this trial will make them a better dancer than if it had just come naturally to them and it was all, everything just fell in place and they didn't have to work for it. Mm. And if they can accept that they needed the break. Yes. As, you know, that what was their body telling them? Right. <clears throat> because I do, I do visualizations with injuries as well. Um, and I get them to talk to, I, I feed them the questions and they talk to their bodies. And these demonstrations that are done in the workshops sometimes bring out emotions because the answers some of the students get and some of the dancers get, professional dancers, are quite emotional because their body has been trying to tell them something for some time. Mm. So one, one person that came out said, I, I can't uh, speak. So I, I then bend down. And they whispered, and the answer was, I need to rest. Mm. So you know, you're getting these answers all the time from your body, or your body's screaming out sometimes, trying to tell you things, and they just the body then just gives out, and then you have an injury due to that. And the stress that, that the body is, is taking also creates stress in the mind. And then that's when anxiety, tiredness, uh, burnout, and all of these sort of things happen. And of course, when you are tired, there is a possible probability rather than a possibility that you are going to be injured because you're not controlling your body in, in, in a way that uh, is safe. Uh, and so these are just knock on effects. You know, does mental illness create a, uh, an injury? And then when you are injured, does do you then get a have a anxiety or, or a mental illness? And I don't mean a mental illness as in a disorder. I mean, you not being yourself uh, and feeling under the weather. Mm. Um, and so the emotions and everything like that. Because you don't need a, a mental illness. You don't need to have a mental illness to come and see me. Right. You, know, you, you, you get to a crossroads in life. So I've had dancers, I'm, I know I'm changing the subject here, but I've had dancers <laughs> come to me and say, I don't know what to do. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm deciding, do I leave? dance do i do something else to and so you know these these crossroads in the roads crossroads in their uh, careers are uh, they, they come to me for, for help for that and also the grieving process of leaving mm. leaving a career leaving an identity now, if you consider i know we're going off subject here i'm sorry but if you consider 
They have trained since some of them from two years old and they are mid-twenties into thirties. So that is a long time to, to have an identity. And then you're going to lose that identity. Or are you? What are you going to do after that? That creates anxiety. Absolutely. And, and when you look at um, extra hypermobile dancers, that's a thing that they're worried about as well. You know, should should they give up? Do they need to persevere with this? Um, so those are the things that uh, are, are talked about in, in therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. There we are. I brought it back to hypermobility. Again. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and Terry, I am so happy that you brought up about grieving because that was, um, you know, not something that I anticipated that we would touch on specifically, but that's critically important. I, I have gone through that personally, um, both, both. Likewise. Yeah, right. When I realized that I was not going to be able to be a professional dancer when I was a teenager and um, my own you know, injuries le led me onto a different path. And then again, when as an anesthesiologist, I had developed some uh, medical problems that then made me have to switch from being working in the operating room to, to doing something different, which I now do pain management. But um, both of those times and then I'll um, several places along the way and with my with my patients and other people that I know you're absolutely right about the grieving of the identity and and that's that's really really hard do you have suggestions for how to cope with that because that I, I think is is a, you hit on a, just a huge part of what's challenging for people mm. well we we go through transitions throughout our life and especially for dancers because if you think local schools into vocational school so you're leaving behind all these things and if you have to move then you're leaving friends as well and you're leaving home if you're going to a boarding school you know for a vocational school or you're, or you're living around the school and then you're going from being a child even though you are sort of 17 18 90 going into a company to become an adult although you're still a child there so there's all these transitions which are small or big uh, grieving and so you have to deal with the process. And as, if you can work through each of those, plus you've got the normal grieving, which is friends and family passing away or pets or moving home. And all of these processes give rise to grieving. And so each process needs to be got through. So it's an acceptance that if you look up the stages of grief. So this is a search online stages of grief. The final stage is acceptance. So you accept where you are and who you are at that point in time and accept what you have learnt. This is me saying it, not, not the stages of grief online. This is me saying it. Accept what you have learnt from the process, mm. the stage just before that. Take that with you, um, whether it's positive or negative. Understand what the negativity is and leave that behind. Bring with you the positive thing, what you've learned. And bring with you the what happened about the negativity so it doesn't happen again. Mm. Um, and so these these processes go go through. And I think the main thing is identity. It's like um, and I, some dancers that have got uh, real you know injuries and they retire and they have these injuries all the time. They just talk about the injuries all the time, or they've had a new knee, or they've had a new hip, and all they're talking about is are these injuries. So the injuries become their identity mm -hmm, rather right. than 
talking about dancers. So if they become well, what are they going to do? They don't have any, they don't have an identity. Nobody's going to run and help them. No one's going to talk to them. You know, all of these things are sort of all wrapped up into identity. So that's so important. Who are you or who am I? Whichever way yes. you want to say it. Yes, absolutely. I, I went through that myself when I had an injury that that stopped my dancing career and and ended up going in for counseling and and using um, Career Transition for Dancers, which is a great organization in the United States that helps dancers who have had a professional career transition. Um, but if I hadn't found that, I don't know where I would have gone and who I would have figured out to talk to. Um, so having people out there that just say, hey, this is a thing and it's okay to need help getting through this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, right. just because you're 27 and you have your whole life ahead of you and you can do so many more careers, just move on. It That's not that easy. So helping people no. do that, understand and acknowledge that it's something that that needs attention um, and that it's OK to give it that attention. That's so important. Yes. Yes. Do you have suggestions for dancers in terms of um, how they can work on the on the mental health aspects so that their physical pain doesn't overwhelm them yes there are visual visualizations that i use to to, to help with pain management um I, jen i don't know what you do um with regard to pain management but personally <laughs> 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 I talk to smart people like Dr. Bluestein um, and, 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 and work on a vitamin regimen, but then pain management for me is about finding that balance between um, healthy movement. You know, I have to keep moving and, and not doing too much movement. I think the, the biggest issue for dancers, especially hypermobile ones, when they retire, whether they retire by choice or forced to by injury, you can't just stop. Um, and when you do stop, your body has been kind of held together for so many years. And when you stop as a hypermobile person, it, it doesn't know what to do. Um, so for me, I have to continue with my exercise, with my working out, with my being accountable to other people, and then stay on top of it with really clean, healthy eating and, and vitamins. And mm. then a fair amount of um, people that I can talk to so that I can unload on people, uh, the people that I can that I confide in. Um, I can unload on them and, and they can build me back up a little bit <laughs> when it gets Good. too Good. bad. <laughs> what do you usually suggest? Um, well, I, although I do this in the workshops that, that I present, uh, the one-to-one the -one sessions are obviously easier because it's, it's more personal, but... It's it's the talking to the body. And I do the demonstration in the workshop just as a, as a proof of how powerful the mind is. So this is talking about anxiety and, you know, reframing, etc. And, and how the voices in our head, and I don't mean a psychotic voices, but the voices, the accumulated voices from parents and teachers, etc. That, that correct us all the time. And I'll get back to, to that in a moment. We're able to reduce the pain whether it's for a short period or a longer period so i teach the uh technique of talking to the injury you know first of all is why do you get the injury um 
and and making the injury the injured area uh, into a sort of symbolic shape or a character or something like that um, and changing what it is and it's quite powerful to, mm. to be able to do that and you know these television programs that say children don't do this at home well i tell them yes do this at home do this uh, after class you know do the visualization and the visualization also relaxes them as well and, and i uh, i teach them meditation and mindfulness so these are all part of of, of what i do um so i'm going to get back to the 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 pain and i get them to score their pain at the beginning and that's how i that's how i pick people out so i want someone with a bit uh, out of zero to 10, you know, quite high to, to enable me to, to, to reduce it uh, to an extent that, oh, wow, that's great. Uh, but I do um, preface what I'm doing and I'm saying, it doesn't mean your injury has healed. It means that your pain is reduced. So don't go off and dance if you have a bad injury, but I've reduced the pain. So it just allows the body also, if it's not trying to protect you from the pain, to actually get on with healing the body. There. That makes sense. This is fantastic, these types of tools that you're giving people, because they can use them throughout their whole lives. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Well, I I like the idea of of looking inside yourself and and looking at the injury and and acknowledging it, giving it a, a symbolic shape or something like that so that people can, can reconcile with that. Um, and I think that leads to, um, if you could elaborate a bit more on how you sort of learn to love and accept your injury and your body. And you spoke a little bit earlier about um, how our identities can be tied up as dancers and who we are and what we can control. Um, how do you help dancers with that? How do you help them accept their body with their love, their hypermobility, love the body shape, whether it's the one that they wish they had or not. Um, and to, to, if not embrace, at least accept and acknowledge and, and love those flaws. So how do you help them with that? It takes a bit of time. And I don't mean like time in one session. I mean, it takes a, quite a few sessions because you have to break the initial thoughts, the thought patterns that they've had right from early on, what they've been told and their own um, subjective view of, of themselves. Mm -hmm. So all of that has to be broken down and broken away and then rebuilt as to who they want to be, mm -hmm. who they feel they are. And once they do that, then they can start loving themselves. And that's mm -hmm. such an important thing to be able to say, I love myself because as a as a dancer and especially ballet, um, it's very black and white thinking right from an early early uh, childhood um, with with a teacher correcting you every day. You know you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and the, the, the self esteem gets uh, gets knocked on the head continually. Um, and so. We then create as dancers throughout our childhood a very black and white thinking. There's no gray, there's no pragmatism. You're either right or you're wrong. So it's it's then turned in on ourselves. You know, I'm no good. Yes. Uh, and and it's it just a, a continual battering of um, it's not verbal abuse, 
uh, <laughs> but it it's verbal negativity mm. you know and a lot of teachers don't have time to support all of the students um so i was in a, a workshop i presented a workshop recently and it came out that uh they were talking about uh, corrections and i said how do you take corrections is it all very well i said you write them in notebooks yes we write them in notebooks at the end of the class or at the end of the day um and then i turned it around i said what do you feel like when you don't get corrected and there was sort of silence in the room in the studio and one person said i felt awful and then you know others were sort of starting to to talk about that about not about feeling bad and so none of them would say oh, that was great i wasn't corrected <laughs> you know feeling good about the fact of not being corrected but it wasn't it was so negative right and so all of that has to be taken away before i'm getting back to your original question all of that has to be taken away and rebuilt into i am okay right it's okay to be sad it's okay to be happy it's okay not to be corrected so the whole thing has to be built up again well and terry this is where it it shows just how valuable it is to have someone like you in this position because most counselors would not stop to think to ask that question um, but, no, right. but that is absolutely true. And I spent my whole life growing up thinking if you don't get corrected, it's because the teacher doesn't think you're worth spending the time correcting mm. because they only yell at the ones that they like. Right. And that's that's <laughs> the sort of feeling you grow up with. Um, and yeah. there's this sense that dancers are are naturally people pleasers and perfectionists. Um, mm. And I wonder how much of it is. Are we constantly trying to please other people? because we haven't figured out how to love ourselves and where that balance is of would we be striving so much for external validation if we had that internal sort of moral center certainty that this is who I am and this is good, you know? You've hit the nail on the head. I don't need to answer that. <laughs> so when you see a dancer who is striving with that, with that, that people-pleasing and that perfectionist tendency, do you try to help them find that healthy balance by working on their their self-appreciation or do you try to help them find a, a work-life balance how do you approach that it's it's across the board and and the thing is jen that when people come and see me they don't come to me for that they come to me for something else that could be mm. uh, i won't say trivial but it could be the top of the iceberg so they're coming sure. to me with the top of the iceberg and then we work downwards and those sort of things then come out after half a dozen sessions or something like that. And I don't want to get too heavy about this, but I think after 10, it was about 10 sessions, this young lady came to, came to see me. And it was 10 sec sessions that she said she was, she's been abused. Mm. And mm -hmm. so that was then, that was the nugget. It, it, you know the the analogy of peeling back uh, the onion skin absolutely until, that was it that was the nugget of the whole thing so this was eight years old and i think she was 17 when she came to see me yeah so all of this had come from that the low self-esteem not good enough etc which was mm -hmm. reinforced then by the teachers mm -hmm. either at, at the academy or 
the ballet school, um, parents ignoring her, all of these sort of things. So it's just a whole compilation of, of different aspects. And you can't say, I'm going to come for one thing and get so that's what happens. Some people don't want to dig there because right. uh, they don't they don't want they either consciously they know it's happened and they don't want to talk about it or unconsciously they're feared there is something there and I don't want to get emotional about it. But the only way you're mm -hmm. going to get emotional about it is, is mm -hmm. actually to work through it and get angry and get upset and get frustrated. Yeah, because that's the only way to, to be healed, to get through mm. it. That's yes. so, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I see the same thing um, physically when dancers come to me and say, you know, I have these, this hip issue and I, I'm trying to, to work on this hip issue. And I say, that's great. We're going to work on your back <laughs> because yeah, I can right. see it's coming from their back and they're like, I don't want to work on my back. I don't like working on my back. Well, <laughs> we're going to work on your back. <laughs> why don't, yeah. Why don't you like working on your back? Because it's hard and I, it's, I can't do it and it doesn't feel good, you know. The, mm. the exact same thing as you, but with much <clears throat> lower stakes. Obviously, the stakes with you are, are much higher. Um, and I think that so much of what the dancers have to deal with, it's, it, it's finding that center, that, that moral center that we talked about and loving yourself, but getting constantly barraged from the teachers, from the parents, from the schools, from the companies. Um, and now... Um, just within the media. past few years from social media, which yes. I cannot tell you how glad I am. My career was before social media. <laughs> I don't know that I would have survived with social media. Um, but but I'm sure that social media and its influence has to come up with your your dancers and the sessions. What 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 sort of problems do you see um, that dancers knowingly or unknowingly might bring in, in with them? And, and what kind of advice would you give dancers about how to utilize social media in the healthiest possible way. Don't, well, the last question, don't go on it. But <laughs> the build-up to, build to your question uh, is um, comparing. Yes. Right, right. So they're comparing, and therefore, if they see other people that are allegedly better than them in that fraction of a second that, that is on there, or their short little video clips that they've taken after class where they've done 12 pirouettes on point. I mean, I bet you they couldn't do that again. Uh, so they can be, oh, my God, look, they've done that. I can't do that. And then their right. self-esteem just sort of drops. Mm -hmm. and, and this awful thing, you know, we're talking about hypermobility, this awful thing of overstretching. Uh, you know, when, when someone takes their leg right over and touches the other ear, or, yeah, I know right. it's, it's overstretching, like that awful crutch shot. That, right. Uh, yeah. Is, is show. I think. Do they dance like that? Right. And of course right. they don't. Right. <laughs> or, know, or if they do, not for very long. Not exactly. for very long. No. Yeah. That's what I was saying. How many people have injured themselves trying to do that because they've seen somebody else do it? Yes. And they think mm. I want to do that, and they don't. <clears throat> you know, realize. I, I think dancers are also drawn to dance. I, I want to definitely continue on the social media topic, but. But I also wonder how many people are drawn to dance because there's some part of them that 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 likes that constant critique and those comparisons and the mm. the um, the hypervigilance about about these little you know I mean anything about ballet it's all about the minor minor details right so mm -hmm. um, people who are hypermobile um, tend to be hypervigilant about a lot of things which of course 
just increases their anxiety and can make um, things like deconditioning. Once it starts to happen, it can make it worse. Mm -hmm. So I, I think Terry's point about social media and just completely staying off is an interesting one because once you're on, it can be very hard to modulate that. Yes, because it's the um, both of you were, were talking in, in different terms about being liked. And uh, yes. that's that's the word, isn't it, on social yes. media? Like, yes. so they're craving for the likes. And so when the likes don't come or not enough likes come, they then become depressed because and upset. Why isn't anyone like me? I've only got 50 and I got 200 the other day. Why didn't they like my photo? And what was wrong with it? And so all of this sort of imaginary build up, uh, you know, the what ifs that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. This is all it's the same, the same model. Um, looking at something that's unrealistic. Absolutely. Yes, I, I totally agree. Um, it's it's finding the balance because social media is here <laughs> and you can't ignore it. Uh, I know dancers, um, when they audition for a company, I know the companies look at their social media. So the social media has become their new resume, basically. Mm. Um, and I tell my dancers when they go audition for uh, colleges or summer intensives, if they're younger, I had a dancer whose friend auditioned for a college summer program. She got a full scholarship. Two days later, she posted on her social media, cut in class because it's too nice outside. And the college called her the next day and revoked her scholarship. And they said, we don't want someone that is going to be cutting class. Wow. <laughs> so I, so I caution my dancers, social media should be your resume. It's your, it's your business card. And and it's what you use to to establish whatever sort of of dancer you're going to be to the world. But it's not it's not something to go to to get affirmation and to get that feedback. Quite because, because yeah. it is fake. It is fake for sure. Mm. Yeah. So one day a week will be a good start because mm. um, obviously they're going to get um, withdrawal symptoms because it's an addiction. So with all addictions, you're going to get withdrawal symptoms. So, yeah, what start off with one day a week? Wow. So literally, yeah, that that is that is great. And I just want to make sure for for myself as well as for everyone else, <laughs> <laughs> what you're what you're suggesting is that literally six days a week is is social media free, and one day per week that you that you go on and do whatever it is that you that you need or want to do but that the other mm -hmm. six days you don't you don't look and I, I, I agree with you I but I, I know myself self-control is going to be as challenging <laughs> but I think it's a fan those these are fantastic suggestions I think that's but I just want to make sure the thing I is the thing is you see I'm you know the saying do as I say not as I do right <laughs> right but my social my social media is business right so my three social media sites are Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter, and they are they are for business. So, and I'll give you the I'll give you the tags now, which is at Counseling for Dancers with two L's. The, with two L's, yep. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jen. Uh, is Instagram and um, uh, Facebook, and because there wasn't enough letters. Uh, to do the, the Twitter one, because you've only got a certain number of uh, letters you can use. It's at Counseling Dance. And this time, it has one L. Ah. <laughs> Just because to keep us on our letters. metaphorical toes. <laughs> yes, right. that's right. Yes. Right. 
Sure. Yeah, you sure. got the point, Jen, yes. didn't you? You got the point. <laughs> yes, this we is did. a fun one. And, yes. yes. And we will have links to um, the, all of your sites, your website, all of your social media sites on the um, Bendy Bodies, which will be found under the hypermobilitymd.com website. So there will be a page for this podcast. Which will have um, which will have those links. So for people that might be thinking, "Wow, how am I going to remember all that? I'm driving in my car, whatever." Um, we will make it as easy as possible for you to find Terry. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Terry, because um, Jen, myself, and you, we all use social media for our business. So, what advice do you give to business owners like like us, who are also you know still trying to navigate relationships and you know, um, other, other things. And so still can run into problems with social media for sure. Are you talking about, uh, business or non-business? I guess I'm talking about kind of, you know, uh, balancing social media use when you're, when you are using it for business, I, you, I, you explain what, if you're not using it for business to use it one day a week and the other six days to staff, if I understand correctly, if you're using mm-hmm. it for business, do you have any suggestions? Because we're going to have a wide variety of listeners on this program, um, some of whom are you know, studio owners, for example, and they may also be using social media for, for their studio, for their you know, ballet studio or their you know, contemporary dance studio or something. Okay. So I'm, um, I'm in two groups of dance teachers. I think it, on Facebook it's Dance Teachers Hub and I think – teachers network dance teachers net something like that and i see uh, a lot of postings on there um you know asking for help and things like that and i i think that that is helpful to to um to, to do posts like that but there are some on there and i think why on earth did you post that it's really <laughs> making you look bad so my advice is be mindful of what you're saying Type it on on a screen or write it first, and and then post it if you think it looks you know if you think it, it's it's okay. But right. some of the things that are posted on on the business thing, it just makes them look uh, idiots, <laughs> and they actually haven't thought it through before posting. You know you know this thing about um, when you get angry and you want to uh, send off an email to someone, you know. Yes, type it out because then you can get your anger out, but don't send it. Right, right. Edit it, edit it down, go away for a few hours, come back and redo it and send it um, without all the anger and stuff, you know, be firm and that sort of thing. Or just, um, yes, just be mindful of what you're writing and what you're posting. Yes. And also pictures as well. Sure. Uh, Especially with with studio owners, with with young girls and boys, be careful what you post picture wise. Sure. Absolutely. And and I was just going to ask about that, about the common denominator. So so you're thinking along the lines of what they might be sharing in the way of photos or uh, that's what I was going to ask you. What what is it that they're doing that that makes you think, did you think twice before you actually hit send or return or whatever the case may be? Mm. I can't think of any examples, but I'm sure your listeners will go, yes, I've seen those. (laughs) The people who go and say, I just have to rant, and then they say a little something and then put the smiley face after it and post it, 
And you think that's the kind of thing you should tell your girlfriend over dinner, not necessarily <laughs> everybody on Facebook. Yes. yes <laughs> right. That's right. Or I your mean, therapist. Or your yes. Therapist. Or your therapist. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think, well, I think an important thing for, for all of us to remember is that the way social media is done with how they kind of keep showing you new things, right? So it feels like it's not permanent when, ac- mm. when in actuality, anything that you write so even if you go back later and delete that comment or you delete that post, somebody could have taken a screenshot of it. So mm-hmm. anything that you write can can actually be, you know, it, for, it, in actual permanence. And I know for me, when I was applying to be on the faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin, they did look at my social media. I mean, they shared with me later that, you know, like you were saying, um, I think it was Jen who was talking about a student who had an offer withdrawn. Um, you know, it, it happens at all levels that they will look at your social media and see what you've um, shared. So you get you get a lot of insight into a person that way. So absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think the other piece to social media, at least for me and, and where I am, um, is to control who I follow. Um, I'm always telling my dancers if you are following people who are super bendy or posting super this and super that, it can lead to a lot of envy and a lot of self-comparison that is not helpful. Um, and I try to only follow people that are encouraging to me or that um, that I learn something from or whose posts I enjoy, but I don't feel like I have to compare myself to them all the time. Mm. So it's what we put out there, but it's also what we allow ourselves to take in from social media. I think as well. Good yes, point. That's right. yeah. 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 Yes. That's a very yes. good point. And I think the more you like certain things, the more that they will show you of those things. So you're right mm. that what you follow is is critically important because they all have algorithms. Right. Yeah. Right. And that and that will show up. Um, well, we have talked a lot about some of the issues that dancers struggle with and a lot of the the burdens and baggage that we carry as a as a general population throughout our careers. Um, but what doesn't get talked about as much with dancers are the, the positive skills that we have, um, that we might have more than the general public. Um, sometimes dancers are portrayed as um, having grown up in a bubble or not very world smart or um, all sorts of different sort of stereotypes. And and there's actually a lot of great life skills that you get out of being a dancer. So. Mm-hmm. What are what do you see as some of these positive skills and how do you encourage them to sort of take ownership of these skills and be able to use them outside the dance studio? When you give up, when you retire, whether forced or <clears throat> by choice, there are so many um, transferable skills that uh, we as dancers have learned. Yes, we may have black and white thinking, but that helps us concentrate. You know, I've set up, so I retired, set up a business. And that, that drive that I had that, that drove me through uh, uh, a dance career, a performance career, the, the concentration, the, the need to improve. So that has carried me through into that business. Um, what I didn't mention over a, a cross period, that for, for 12 years, um, I sat in both criminal and family courts as a magistrate uh, part time. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and I was also for four years on the Lord Chancellor's Advisory Committee. So I, I sat on that. So all of these different things that I learned as a dancer from that early age and performing 
uh, were transferable into all of these different aspects of life. And then, of course, doing a master's degree at something like 15 years old, I think it was. <laughs> and I wasn't academic at all. I left school with three exams, English language, maths and general science. I was rubbish at school. And then I was doing this <laughs> master's degree. Um, so, so it doesn't it doesn't matter. Nowadays, of course, uh, in in a lot of the vocational schools, they want you to do a degree. Mm-hmm. So they've already sort of started the ending, as it were, started to help you. But yes, there are all these transferable positives that we have. So being in a family group, not as a, as in dancers. So being sure. in a group together. I, I know there are some individuals who would like to be by themselves, but and supporting each other. So that all of these positives, you know, that I um I went to a school on Monday, went to a, a pre-professional school on Monday because one of the dancers had died from cancer. And so I was doing a, a group. It wasn't group therapy, but I was just talking to them about grief. And I spent uh, about an hour with them. And when one was talking and they were in tears, all these arms would come out of nowhere mm-hmm. and they'd all touch yeah. that person. It was so wonderful to see. So there is this camaraderie that that uh, is built up when 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 you're dancing, either in school or uh, performing. There's the speed of learning things. So these are all positives. Even if some people say, oh, I can't pick this up and I can't. They do. They do. Mm-hmm. But they, they think they don't. There is uh, the positives of actually going out on stage and performing. Wow. You know, 2,000 people, 1,500 people, however, however many, 400 people. But you go out there and you perform and you do something. It, it, it takes a lot. So all of these are positives. Can you think of any others, Jane? Linda? Um, for me, I, I found it the discipline was very helpful. Yeah. You know, you have to have a certain amount of self-discipline to reach a certain Ooh. level, even if it's just in the ballet school and not even professionally. Um, so I think the discipline crosses over into a lot of different, uh, a lot of different areas. Um, Linda, what about you? I, I think for me, in um, I know when I was first getting injured and I was in high school, I found myself with these big, huge blocks of time when I wasn't able to dance. And I thought, wow, now what do I do? Because I was I was used to having to be so efficient, you know, with with my you know, schoolwork and um, you know, getting my class rehearsal, whatever. So I think definitely all of the things that both of you have have mentioned and time for me time management was another one that was very oh yes yes yeah yeah very useful absolutely well and terry you mentioned earlier that one of the benefits um of being a dancer is that that family group and that sense of closeness um and we absolutely lean on each other you know during the hard rehearsals and the long tech weeks and and the disappointing casting and all of that stuff um when someone is going through something, when a dancer is going through some sort of challenging mental health issue, what can their families, their dance family or their actual family and, and their friends do to support their dancer? What what are some suggestions you would give to those who see a dancer struggling with something? Okay. The first thing is don't try and fix it. Mm. Thank you. Just, just yeah. be, just be the pair of ears. Just be someone that will listen. Beautiful. 
Yes. That's it. That's all they need. They may they may feel so much better. The majority of the time, people just want to offload. No, you called it upload? No. No. Download? What did Download. you call it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I call it offload. Yes. <laughs> With a double L. Yeah. <laughs> And one F, except on Twitter when it's one L. <laughs> yeah, right. So just just be there to listen to the people. So I get I get um, so I, I'm still still dealing with general public uh, come to see me for therapy, and the the, the most com complaints that come in from women and it's usually women, um, say that either he won't listen to me. Or he wants to fix it. And this is a male thing, you see. But uh, in the dance world, everyone wants to fix things because we are fixers. Yes. We want to get things right. You we see? want to so get it right. It, exactly. That's right. So it's, it's, a, it's our mindset. Um, so we want to help people. We want to fix it for them. Um, and this is what you should do. And that's what you should do. And if I was in your place, then da, da, da. no, don't do any of that. Just say, what would be helpful for you, for me to do? Mm, I love that. That is beautiful. So what would, what would they, what sort of warning signs would they need to look for? Family and friends and dancers themselves um, about the possibility of self-harm, about uh, going into an eating disorder or depression slash suicidal thoughts um what sort of warning signs do we need to look for in dancers whether in ourselves or in, in friends who surround us um to at to the point where they we need to encourage them to get help okay i think from the point of view of selves uh it creeps up mm. it creeps up on the individual and if they do start self-harming that that's the realization you know, if they do start cutting themselves or scratching or picking sores or things like that, mm -hmm. or start pulling their eyebrows out or eyelashes, mm -hmm. there's a realization there that something is wrong. And they need to feel brave and open enough to say to someone, I need help, you know, to ask. So Monday, as the example for, for this for this group, I said for their year group. Don't just say, hi, how are you? Because that's that's the vernacular nowadays, isn't it? That's when you say, hi, how are you? And let's say you walk past. If that person looks low, down, sad, uh, doesn't want to talk, actually ask them again a couple of times. How are you? Would you like to talk? And so that will that's the supportive way. Uh, the other signs are. Um, being reclusive, um, not wanting to join in with things, especially if you're in a group or, you know, a year group or a family. Um, within a family, not wanting to eat, not wanting to talk, um, sleeping a lot, going up in the bedroom a lot. Mm. Um, so not communicating. And those, those are, are some of the signs. Uh, being tearful uh, a lot. Uh, of course, you know, and that's only if you, you actually see them being tearful because most of the time they, they go and cry in their bedroom or their room. Right. Right. And there's there's these little signs and and friends and family that know these people well will see changes. And they will hear changes in what's been said as well. 
-hmm. So if there are any changes, those are the signs. Mm. Um, being, I'm just trying to think uh, how to word it. Um, being overly loud, um, talking too much, because what they're doing, the individual is covering up. Masking, yes. Yes. So uh, as you say, they're masking their feelings by going over the top. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't realize they're going over the top um, because it's not them and, and other people will recognize it. So it's recognizing the differences, the yes. subtle differences in, in the individual's behavior. Yes. Well, it sounds like over the course of this conversation, what I've heard from you is that dancers have to be able to get to a point where they love themselves and accept themselves um, and can can hold that place within themselves regardless of what other people are saying or doing around them um, and it sounds like we are hoping and we desperately need mental health to become a more talked about uh, issue amongst dancers and that the stigma needs to be taken away so that it can be something that is more open and out there and I've crossed paths with you several times over the past year or so we've, we've worked together on some things. Um, and I know you've been working hard since I think you said 2017, um, mm. to sort of, to build this. And, and there are a few other organizations out there. What are you hoping to see have happen in the next couple of years for, uh, mental health and dancers? And where are you hoping that it's going to go new, new studies that will come out, um, bridges that might be built. What are you hoping will happen? But what I see in the next five years <clears throat> is in the UK, um, I want to set up um, continuing professional development, CPD workshops for counsellors and psychotherapists that want to work with people in show business, want to work with performers. Um, so they understand what performers are, because I've had so many clients come to me and said, oh, I have had counselling before. They didn't have an idea what I was talking about. And in fact, and, and one of them said, in fact, they told me to give up because, because of the anxiety. Oh, well, this is not the right profession for you. Um, so that they have no idea. So there's that. Um, there's I'm trying to get some research together or trying to uh, get uh, a research centre together so it'll be a university or something like that um, and if any of your listeners know of one even if it's in the in the states <clears throat> to do research and it needs a dance company or needs a, a, a pre-professional school vocational school because it needs um, quantitative uh, research done on if you if you have a, a mental health issue and it doesn't matter how mild it is, so mild anxiety or depression, something like that, um, are you more susceptible to injury? Mm. Uh, mm. So there's that, that research. And then the other research is that uh, looking at ADHD and uh, so neurodiversity, neurodiversity mm -hmm. in dancers, mm. is it more prevalent? So it's still up to a non-diagnosable level, but is it more prevalent in dancers than it is in the general public mm. because of the because of the ballet training especially ballet ballet training from year dot when the, you first start and i was talking about the black and white thinking and that's all part of these traits of neurodiversity yeah so those are the two bits of research that, that that i'm looking at and obviously there's all different other researches but you know it comes from the top so this next five years hopefully comes from the top the principles of the 
pre-professional, the vocational schools and the artistic directors opening their ears and taking their blinkers off uh, to say, yes, there is an issue and yes, please come and help us. So from my individual point of view, and I only know that there's a couple of people other than myself. There's one, I think, on the West Coast, your West Coast, and there's someone in Australia. But I am available to travel the world to do these workshops for the, the schools and for the dance companies. And it, until when I do these workshops, they go, wow, yeah, I wish you'd have come before. We needed you. <laughs> they're, they're so blinkered that they just don't listen. Right. And they don't want to know. Yes, because everything has to be glamorous. There has to be the glitter, the lights, the mm -hmm. costumes and everything. It's got it all wonderful. They don't want any issues about mental health. Ooh, right. No. How will this look on Instagram? <laughs> well, we're, mm. we're masters of illusion, right? I mean, we're taught. We are. From, Smoke right. and mirrors. Yeah. Yep. Th yeah. This is what I explained on Saturday, too, that, you know, with pain, pain and dancers, which is, you know, pain, hypermobility disorders, those are my two biggest areas that I'm mm. passionate about. And this this ties into both, of course. And that we're, we're taught from an early age that, you know, yes, we need to try to be as perfect, as, especially in ballet, as perfect as possible because there is a right and a wrong way to do everything and that we're supposed to make it look as effortless as possible. So then mm -hmm. it really becomes a problem. How do we get that self-care that we need? How do we tap into resources? How do we, you know, work work together? So I, mm -hmm. I love what you're doing, Terry and, and Jen. I mean, it's um, really, really fantastic to get this information. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have so much to chew over from this interview. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And I can't wait for my dancers to hear it and to get encouraged um, from, from what they hear in this. Uh, is there anything that you want to add, anything that you want to say that hasn't been said to those dancers, especially the hypermobile ones that struggle with the issues we've talked about today? Is there anything you wanted to add? No, just to reiterate, love yourself. Be good to yourself. Look yeah. after yourself. Absolutely. And if you've got a day off, have a day off. Don't do cross training. <laughs> Thank you. I Don't hope all my dancers heard that. <laughs> Have a day off, away from everything. Get out of the ballet bubble. Talk to people that have got nothing to do with ballet. Have make friends with people that have nothing to do with ballet. Get us an outside look on life. I left the ballet bubble uh, when I left festival ballet into uh, musical theatre. Wow, what a difference. <laughs> Great. But it would be nice yeah. to be in ballet and still have the difference. But it's no, so it was the bubble, blinkered, terrible. Mm. And people can find you at counselingfordancers.com, which is the two L's. They can find you <laughs> at counselingfordancers on Instagram and Facebook with two L's. And on Twitter, at Council Dance with one L. Did I get that correct? No, Counseling Dance with one L. Okay, for Twitter. Okay. Counseling Dance with one L. Okay, very good. And, and we will also have all, the, all of these links on the Hypermobility MD um, website under the Bendy Bodies uh, podcast link. So. Yeah. And they can email me from the website. There's an email address or just click on email and up comes your email account so for you to, to uh, ask me questions and things. Excellent. Okay. And I know that people with your expertise are 
few and far between. And I also know that you, um, that you do long distance counseling. So if anybody does not live in the UK, don't let that discourage you from reaching out to Terry and talking to him and he can work with you wherever you are. Correct. Yes. And, and treat it like you're going to a physical therapist. Yes. You know, to, to mm-hmm. just if you've got even one little thing that's wrong, you've got an audition coming up or something like that, or just one little thing, only one or two sessions. And, and it could clear you. Obviously, some of them are a lot more difficult than that. But just treat it like I'm just going to go to the physical therapist. Mm-hmm. And having somebody with your expertise and your objectivity makes such a huge difference because as much as we talked about family support and things like that, and that's critically important, those people are, their perspective is going to be um, different because they're, you know, they're already present in your, in your life, whereas you can, not only do you have the skill set and the experience uh, from multiple different angles, you've had such an interesting um, and career with so many uh, exposures that really, you know, give you such a unique perspective on all of this, so... Mm. Uh, there, there is another thing uh, about about the therapy is that a lot of schools and dance companies do have in-house therapists, counsellors, um, but the either the students or the dancers themselves don't want to go through the company mm-hmm. because then the company knows, even though supposedly what's said in the counselling uh, room is confidential, uh, and I've heard otherwise from this from another from a school. Um, coming to me, there's no contact with the school or the or the dance company, so it really is confidential. Right, right. And in the U.S., I know, and I, I would imagine it's true other places. There, the rules surrounding confidentiality in mental Correct. health are much more strict than they are for you know your medical records. Otherwise, however, that being said, I can completely understand. The, the reluctance on the part of the student, because you just don't, if you don't know 100% that you can say anything that you need to, um, mm-hmm. that, that it's, it's not a safe, it's not the safe space that you need. You know, they need a, a completely safe space to express um, their their concerns, so. The, the other thing is that they will possibly, are more likely to talk about their injuries to the school, I've gotten injured this, and then they go along to, to the physical therapist and the uh, strength and conditioning coach, etc. that the school supplies. But there is this, other than the stigma, there is a, um, a thought from the student or the dancer that they're weak. There's a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they probably won't even go to the school counselor or the company counselor. Sure. Yes. And I know that that's true in other athletes as well. And I think that that's the other thing with dancers is that they, they are both artist and athlete. And so this com- this entire conversation is also relevant for athletes. It's, you know, it's different for, for athletes, but I think that it's um, useful information for, for so many people. Absolutely. Yeah. So is there anything else that you would like to add, Terry? Yes, um, I'm in the process of writing a book, Mental Health Self-Care for Dancers, uh, which should be out uh, in October to run in line with the, um, I think it's just the UK's Mental Health Day, uh, which is in October. So it'll be coming out then, all ready for Christmas presents. (laughs) Oh, perfect. perfect. 
Well, I know what will be on my next um, wish list that I publish every year, your book. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think Jen and I will have to get boxes of those shipped here to yes. the States. <laughs> out to all our dancers. It, it, will, it will be on print on demand, so you'll be getting them in oh, your own country. Perfect. Perfect. Eco-friendly as well, then. So. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much, Terry, for, for coming on the program today. Um, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And today, my guest co-host has been Jennifer Milner. And this has just been such a great conversation. Um, Terry, we can't thank you enough for my sharing pleasure. your wisdom and knowledge with us. Yes. Well, great. Well, we'll catch you next time. And uh, thank you again. Please go to BendyBodies.org for links to all the episodes and to access the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, leave a review, and consider rating us five stars. Don't forget to subscribe so you will be notified of all new episodes. Feedback is greatly appreciated and can be emailed to BendyBodiesPodcast at gmail.com. Go to HypermobilityMD.com to sign up for my newsletter. My guest co-host, Jennifer Milner, can be reached at jennifer at jennifer-milner.com. That's M-I-L-N-E-R. Thank you to Rhett Gill for production and sound editing, to Andrew Savino for composing our original music, and to Jennifer Arsenault for designing the Bendy Bodies website and cover artwork. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your health care. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Music